Welcome to the Peds NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, and today we're gonna to talk about CNS infections, but we're gonna take it one step further. We're gonna use a case that I actually saw in the emergency department to exhibit a very important point in evaluation and family education. You'll wanna to listen to the very end. We take CNS infections very seriously because of the importance of prompt recognition and treatment in order to avoid serious sequelae, long-term disability, or even death. CNS infections can be caused by viruses, bacteria, fungi, or parasites. But how do they get there? We think most often about the neonate whose blood-brain barrier is not as tight as us older individuals, and infections often begin as bacteremia before host factors such as cytokine release increase the permeability of the blood-brain barrier that leads to CNS invasion. But pathogen entry can derive from other sources too, such as infections in juxtacranial structures like the middle ear or sinuses, or procedures that expose the area to vulnerability such as a cochlear implant or a VP shunt. The pathogens may vary greatly by age, so you can use the patient's age, past medical history of any immunodeficiency or risk factor, and other presenting symptoms to guide your workup. For instance, a neonate with a bulging fontanelle and irritability should worry you for bacterial meningitis. And you'll know that GBS and E. coli are the number one and two most common pathogens seen in newborns. So you can look to mom's GBS status and a urine sample for clues. In older infants, we still worry about late onset GBS, but begin to also worry about strep pneumoniae and meningococcal disease. Strep pneumoniae becomes the most common cause of bacterial meningitis in older infants and children. Thankfully, the widespread use of the Hib vaccines in the 90s has meant that we don't see much meningitis from this bacteria in developed countries anymore. And I'm hopeful that with continued Prevnar vaccination advancements, we could see the incidence of pneumococcal meningitis decrease in the coming years as well. Patients with viral or aseptic meningitis may present similarly but the workup will not show evidence of bacterial invasion. Even though viral meningitis is the most common CNS infection in children, it's hard to classify how common it really is because many of the pathogens are not reportable diseases to the health department, making it difficult to track. I recommend adding an enterovirus PCR to the culture tube of CSF, especially in the summer and fall, because enteroviruses cause a majority of viral meningitis. You can also consider your geography for pathogens that are vector-borne, such as West Nile transmitted by mosquitoes or Lyme disease transmitted by deer ticks. And although uncommon, never close your differential diagnosis too early to consider the zebras of meningitis, like tuberculosis, herpes, especially in the neonate, fungi, or even non-infectious causes like autoimmune disease or medications. We've talked about meningitis, which is inflammation of the meninges and tissues surrounding the brain and spinal cord. But what about other types of CNS infection? I'm glad you asked, because it's important to talk about encephalitis, which involves the brain parenchyma itself. Encephalitis can be difficult to distinguish or may even coexist with meningitis to present as meningoencephalitis. Once the parenchyma is involved, Cerebral edema can lead to increased ICP and a rapidly deteriorating patient with hypoxemia, coma, and herniation. The same viral, bacterial, and immune etiologies are implicated, but in many cases, the etiology remains elusive. 
In a patient with fever and neurologic signs, you should also consider a subdural empyema, superlative thrombophlebitis, or brain abscess, especially if the history points to a risk factor. I've seen brain abscesses present in several different ways, including a teenager who was cliff jumping into a lake and the shooting water up his nose led to headaches, photophobia, and fever a few days later. I've also seen a school-aged boy who had unmanaged sinusitis for weeks because the parents were so busy at home with his twin and three other siblings until his fever, vomiting, and unilateral weakness became symptoms they could not ignore. Infections of the spinal cord might also present with weakness, meningeal pain, and fever. Consider these in patients with a high risk of infection, like a patient with a recent epidural or lumbar puncture, a baclofen pump, or a myelomeningocele. Presentation of CNS infections may look similar in many cases, so you should always keep your guard up and your reflexes sharp when a patient has fever and neurologic symptoms. Now, neurologic symptoms is very vague. So what's encompassed in this term? Well, the answer depends on the age and sometimes the virulence of the pathogen. For instance, neonates should never be trusted because they can have a variety of nondescript symptoms such as fever or hypothermia irritability and fussiness, or excessive sleepiness. And because infants have a pop-off valve in their open fontanelles, you typically won't see nuchal rigidity, but you may notice a full or bulging fontanelle, poor feeding, jaundice, hypotonia, or seizures. Once those fontanelles close, picking up on some key neurologic symptoms can be done with a couple of physical exam maneuvers. Koenig's sign is positive when you flex the hip and knee to 90 degrees, then extending and straightening the knee causes pain. I remember this because Koenig starts with K and the shape of the knee extended kind of looks like the lower part of a K. You might also notice a positive Brudzinski sign. This is elicited by lying the patient supine, then bending their neck forward, which causes them to pull in their knees and hips due to the irritation in the meninges it causes. Other nondescript symptoms include headache, photophobia, back pain, and other signs of increased ICP, like vomiting, altered level of consciousness, irritability, or confusion. And you should always worry about focal neurologic signs such as a focal or unilateral weakness or extraocular movement changes. When we talk about a focused physical exam, I'm not just talking about the neurosystem. A focused exam is not shorter, and in fact is often more in-depth and more detailed than a full cursory physical exam would be. You'll want to examine the lungs for tachypnea to suggest a compensating acidosis or detected infection. Conversely, respiratory depression, coupled with bradycardia and hypertension, is a sign of Cushing's triad, which is a late sign of increased ICP. Look further at the cardiovascular exam to focus on signs of cardiovascular compromise or shock. And the skin exam can give you clues to perfusion as well in capillary refill and warmth but it can also be helpful for signs of infection, such as petechiae, purpura, or a viral exanthem. Your workup may vary depending on the patient's presentation, risk factors, and epidemiology. But we're talking about a kid who is sick, so I want you to be liberal with your diagnostic investigations to effectively diagnose and treat the illness. In some cases, the result of one test may lead you to order others. For instance, you should always get a CBC with differential and blood culture because so many children with meningitis are septic. And if you also note thrombocytopenia, then you should further work up disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, 
with a D-dimer and coag studies. A chemistry is a good idea to monitor kidney function and serum electrolytes, but you may also want to get a complete metabolic panel or add a hepatic function panel if the patient has jaundice to suggest liver dysfunction. Inflammatory markers like ESR, CRP, and procalcitonin can signal infection, but are not specific to one disease process or pathogen over another, so they're not mandatory in the workup, but they can be very useful for trending purposes. If you suspect that there's a possibility of an intracranial mass, say in a child who has focal neurologic symptoms or seizure in the absence of fever, you may need a head CT without contrast first to rule out a space-occupying lesion or increased ICP that could cause herniation during a lumbar puncture. Add contrast if abscess or empyema is on the differential diagnosis. Otherwise, the CSF from an LP is the most useful diagnostic tool for definitive diagnosis of meningitis. Each tray typically comes with four tubes, and if you're lucky to get a champagne tap, well, pop the bubbly. You can just fill them up and send them to the lab. But if the tap started out bloody and then clears, it can be valuable to think through which test you want to order from which tube. The most important tube is always the culture and gram stain, and this should be the first tube no matter what. Because the presence of a lot of blood can alter our interpretation of the results, you'll want to order the next labs on progressively less bloody samples as the CSF clears. So you should then order glucose, protein, and your cell count, which gives you white blood cells and red blood cells. It's important for you to learn the expected results of CSF in each kind of CNS infection based on the glucose, protein, and cell count. But in most cases, if you were concerned enough to do an LP to evaluate for infection, empiric antibiotics are a prudent next step in management. In cases where a lumbar puncture is not possible or contraindicated due to the patient's condition, we always say not to delay giving empiric antibiotics. But be warned that 44% of patients pre-treated with antibiotics before an LP may have a negative culture. In those cases, we can still use the glucose, protein, and cell count once the LP is obtained to make our diagnosis, but organism identification may be impossible. To start talking about management at this point in the podcast seems silly. You've been managing this patient since the moment you laid eyes on them. So no doubt you've got the entire multidisciplinary team involved, from ED physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, and maybe even the ICU team upstairs. Management until now has been primarily focused on supporting the ABCs, fluid resuscitation, seizure control, or antipyretics. After you send off your labs, your empiric antibiotics will depend on the age of the child and most likely pathogens. In the neonate at risk for GBS, E. coli, and other gram negatives, we typically think of ampicillin and gentamicin as being the standard empiric choice. But some institutions will use ceftazidime until ceftriaxone is indicated at one month. However, ceftaz can have poor coverage against resistant bacteria like ESBL E. coli, so gent really would be ideal. In older children, a third-generation cephalosporin does an excellent job of sterilizing the CNS within a few hours, and we often add vancomycin because pneumococcal disease is such a bad player with growing antibiotic resistance. The team upstairs can narrow the spectrum of antibiotics once a pathogen and susceptibilities have been identified. Duration of treatment can span anywhere from 14 to 21 days for uncomplicated CNS infections, and even longer in complicated cases like abscess. 
Some of these superlative infections may require neurosurgery to drain and support the treatment. Before we talk about my case, I want to touch briefly on a controversial adjuvant therapy, dexamethasone. Dexamethasone is particularly helpful at reducing hearing loss, which can be seen in upwards of 30% of children with bacterial meningitis. It's most effective in children with Hib meningitis. But since we don't see it much anymore in the United States, is it really necessary? A study of a subgroup in a large meta-analysis showed that children from high-income countries who had non-Hib meningitis and received corticosteroids experienced some reduction in severe hearing loss. So the authors of this study suggested that children might benefit from corticosteroids because there was no evidence of adverse effects from the treatment and some benefited. But it still remains controversial in the United States where we're less likely to worry about Hib and more likely to be concerned about resistant pneumococcal infections that need vancomycin to effectively treat. And because it's hypothesized that corticosteroids can reduce vancomycin's ability to penetrate the CSF, well, dexamethasone has another point against its empiric use. This is a hard decision to make because dexamethasone works best when it's administered before or within an hour of empiric antibiotics, and it really has no benefit if given later. All the AAP tells us on this issue is that we clinicians need to weigh the risks and benefits in children with meningitis who are over six weeks old. There may be some cases when a repeat lumbar puncture is necessary, such as a patient who's not clinically improving on antibiotics, neonates with confirmed gram-negative bacilli meningitis, and patients with a return of fever after day eight. Patients with viral meningitis really just need supportive care with pain control, antipyretics, and hydration. In some cases, you can consider whether antiviral therapy is warranted depending on the timing, patient, and pathogen. Most are going to make a full recovery, but children with viral encephalitis or bacterial infections don't always have as excellent of outcomes. Any child with a severe CNS infection should have their hearing tested prior to discharge. And you may also need to arrange outpatient occupational or physical therapy to help them regain function lost due to their acute illness. The PCP will then take over from here to monitor development, behavior, and cognitive progress. School-aged children may need a 504 plan or academic services since some of the neurologic sequelae can affect the child's school potential and performance. I've seen viral and bacterial meningitis a few times each in my career but one in particular stands out because I missed it. It was so long ago that I don't remember all of the specifics of the encounter, but I recall that the patient was a previously healthy two-year-old girl who'd had fever for three days or so. She'd been seen by her PCP who reported that they did a CBC in the office that was normal. I don't remember the numbers, but I remember that nothing jumped out to me as I discussed her on the phone with her referring PCP. She was sent to the ED because she wasn't potty trained and needed a cath urine sample. This was well within the recommendations from the AAP on how to manage fever without source in a toddler female, so I was all for it. Her urine came out clear and we gave her some Tylenol. The part I remember best was seeing her through the clear sliding glass doors and she was running around the room with goldfish in her hand. We had fixed her. Go home, we'll run the culture and call you if anything grows. Continue Tylenol and ibuprofen and follow up with your pediatrician if she's still having fever after five days. She didn't have that chance because two days later, she came back to the trauma-based seizing. 
30% of patients with meningitis will have seizures. And for 20% of them, it's the presenting symptom. They had a hard time stopping her status epilepticus, which is a poor prognostic indicator in meningitis. She made it to the PICU where her infectious workup eventually revealed meningococcemia, but unfortunately, she didn't survive the infection. As I look back on the encounter with 2020 vision, there are some things that I think about. I don't remember whether the PCP had gotten a blood culture on day three of fever. 80 to 90% of patients with meningitis have a positive blood culture. So if severe bacterial infection is really on your differential diagnosis, go ahead and get one. I probably wouldn't have done one on this non-toxic immunized patient, but she wasn't immunized against meningococcal disease. She was too young. We have meningococcal vaccines, but don't routinely give them to children until age 10 unless they have a pre-existing condition known for increasing their risk for invasive disease, such as functional asplenia, HIV, persistent complement component deficiency, use of complement inhibitors such as ravulizumab, or travel in meningitis endemic areas like sub-Saharan Africa. Invasive disease can be insidious and nonspecific but the onset of sepsis is often abrupt and becomes lethal, sometimes within hours. This was a really hard event for me. I went to my department chair and asked if I could have done anything differently. He said no, and actually praised me for how detailed my note was. It spelled out lots of small details that gave a picture of what she looked like that day. I documented her apple juice and goldfish. I documented my conversation with the PCP before and after her care. I wrote down the whole story with everything pertinent for a child presenting with fever without source. He said that most ED providers aren't as thorough in their documentation, which really helped them see that I didn't miss anything when we reviewed the case. So here's my take-home point. We're seeing patients in a snapshot in time, but disease exists on a continuum. You're making decisions with the historical knowledge that you've gathered up until the moment that you did the physical exam Sometimes your window to evaluate a patient is as little as 15 minutes. Document exactly what you see. And sometimes you're right, the patient just has a virus and they're going to get better in a day or so. But what if you're wrong? How would a family know that their child is sick? That's why I emphasize the importance of objective, quantifiable return criteria. Because so many parents have trouble counting in 24-hour increments, they'll over-exaggerate the duration of fever. So I count out the days since fever onset and tell the parent exactly when I want them to reevaluate if fever persists. It started Friday night? Okay. If fever is still going on Wednesday morning or afternoon, then I want to see her. Teach them about counting wet diapers for dehydration instead of telling them to look for dehydration. Families may ask, How high is too high for fever? And I usually tell them not to look at the number, but look at their kid. Help parents understand that their child should perk up after a dose of Tylenol and act normal for a few hours before the fever comes back. This is when they should drink and play for a little bit, even if they don't eat or go wild like normal. Then they fade again. And that's a good thing. It's when they don't perk up at all that I want you to come in. And listing concern as the final return criteria, is always very important. Remind them that they should always be able to get in touch with someone on the phone about their child without having to make that decision about whether to be seen on their own. 
So you need to make sound judgments during that snapshot in time based on this really sound evidence from the literature that we just talked about. But give parents the return criteria to acknowledge that disease progresses. Kids get sicker and you haven't forgotten the acute care differential. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the Peds NP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. There is no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the Peds NP. Find me on Instagram at the Peds NP podcast. DM me or send questions and comments to the Peds NP at gmail.com. You can see show notes and references at www.thepedsnp.com. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You could save a child's life. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.